Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Nessa Hardiman, a writer and director whose credits include tons of television, including episodes of Holby City, Casualty, and Happy Valley in the UK, and Marvel's Inhumans and Jessica Jones on this side of the Atlantic, including the series finale of Jessica Jones. Her first feature, the nautical quarantine thriller Sea Fever, premiered at TIFF in 2019, and it's now available on disc and on demand. It's a solid riff on some classic horror themes with engaging performances and a plot that is incredibly unnervingly relevant to the current moment. Nessa picked Fritz Lang's M, the 1931 thriller about a city terrorized by a murderer of children, driving the police and the underworld to launch parallel investigations in order to make the streets safe again. It's a truly remarkable feat of movie making built around a complex and even sympathetic protagonist played by a baby-faced and utterly chilling Peter Lorre. Lang creates an entire genre here. There were no serial killer thrillers before this, and almost 90 years later, M still has the ability to slip under your skin and stay there. This is someone else's movie. I chose M because I'm a big Fritz Lang fan. I'm really blown away, first of all, of course, by the the overall oeuvre, but by M in particular, for a number of different reasons. So it's made in 1931. It's made, what, three years after the first sound film has been made? And it's still, 90 years later, it still feels contemporary. It feels experimental. It feels edgy. I think the way that Fritz Lang juxtaposes image and sound in the film still feels formally innovative and interesting. I think the performances are spectacular, particular, particularly Peter Lorre, who looks like he's about 12 in the film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he is just brilliant. He's evocative and emotive. And he, he gives this noir performance that is so incredibly well judged. And I think in terms of narrative, the film is very interesting because... It sets us up with a story that's actually a story about two groups rather than two individuals, which, as you and I know, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah. And it tells the story of these two groups and presents the audience with quite a complex moral conundrum, quite a difficult philosophical question that it chooses not to answer. It chooses just to let you sit with that question at the end. So for all those reasons, it feels like a very modernist film, even though it's 90 years old. Yeah, I was really struck, and in, in researching it, um, this I've, I've watched it, I think I've seen it three times straight through, and a couple of other times in bits and pieces. And this time through, I was really struck in the way he, I mean, Lang claimed he was the first to do it, and it, for all I know he was, uh, to run the dialogue from one scene into another, um, and, and use it to inform the thematic connections, but also to, to pull the audience along, which gives this film, which is pretty static for a lot of, I mean, just the, the camera setups, the camera's either moving or absolutely locked down and it can feel static, but it doesn't because there is this ticking clock aspect to it. There's all this conflict going on behind on oh, the corners of the frame and the edges of the frame and the sound going away the way it does. He doesn't bother with street noise. He doesn't bother with atmosphere. It's really just people talking or Making physical sure contact with things. Actually, I think you're. I think. I think his use of sound is absolutely fascinating. I think you're dead right, mm. and the sound bridges are really fascinating. 
And the way that he uses voiceover and the way that he uses uh, sound bridges through from one scene to another is compelling. And the way that he uses sound bridges, he uses sound bridges between two different communities of people who are having kind of parallel but slightly different conversations. Yeah, is compelling. But it, I don't think that it's true to say that he only uses uh, vo- uh, human voice. I think he does a really odd thing that still feels really strange to us 90 years later, where he uses a lot of street sounds and he uses a lot of, um, you know, the sounds of contemporary Berlin of, uh, you know, car, old car horns and uh, traffic and the noise of street vendors and all that stuff. And then sometimes he just pulls it out. That, well, that, yeah, that's what I mean. He's very strategic about it. How yeah, it's, it's very deliberate, isn't it? It's, yeah. Um, None of it is accidental. I remember hearing uh, your your countryman, Adam Agoyan, talk at BAFTA many years ago. Oh, yeah. And uh, he made this very brilliant, I thought, um, observation where he said, look, essentially filmmaking is you're going to fall into one of two camps as a filmmaker. Either you're going to be in the spirit of Jean Renoir, where uh, you want to try to reconstruct reality and make the audience feel like they are immersed in something that's really happening and the camera just happens to be accidentally turned on and everything is unfolding in the way that it does in a slightly chaotic way uh, and you're an observer and that's one kind of filmmaking which can be really compelling and obviously there are many filmmakers still to this day that work in that way you could include people like Ken Loach or Andrea Arnold or um, Noah Baumbach you know It's, uh, it's, it's this verite, uh, very realist um, uh, approach to cinema. And he said, and the other camp essentially is Fritz Lang. The other camp is the camp where you decide you want to tell the truth about the world, not by simply having the camera as a mechanical recording device, but by using the camera as an active storytelling device where every image is a considered image and every sound is a considered sound and you're creating a a, a completely artificial, allegorical, metaphorical world through which you're going to tell your story and articulate a deeper truth. And it really resonated with me at the time because I thought that is what is so brilliant about Fritz Lang. That was what was so inventive about what he was doing with cinema. And when you watch something like M, it's all there. It's all there. You know, the, um, the extraordinarily well-considered structure of every single image, the way that he uses light, the way that he positions the camera so that it's slightly off angle and you're getting these beautiful architectural shapes that are also unsettling. Yeah, there are right angles everywhere. It's so disturbing. Uh, And and shadow and light and all those things. And, and, you know, there's a point where you're looking up Inspector Lohmann's trousers, where you're seeing his garters and his vulnerability, even though he looks like this kind of mammoth creature in the frame because you're looking right up at him. Or he puts the camera above a little, uh, a small elderly man who's about to be bullied by the crowd. There's a lot of top shots in this film, Mm -hmm. which is very unusual for the time. And the other thing that he does with the camera, which I absolutely love, is uh, it's really, I mean, you know, it's called expressionism for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) And the camera is incredibly expressive. Uh, So not only is he finding the angle uh, which will articulate cinematically what the emotion of that scene is, articulate formally and visually, but also he's using, the camera is incredibly mobile. Like for 1931, it's, absolutely extraordinary how much he's moving the camera and the camera is an active storytelling device all the time 
And there are tricks that he does with the camera that have never been done before that film. And that you see other directors just copying over and over again, right up until the present day. Tricks that were copied in Citizen Kane, tricks that are copied in uh, uh, um, Martin Scorsese's films, tricks that are copied by Steven, all the great filmmakers, Steven Spielberg, that, that you see in M and you go, it's so emotive and it's so expressive. And of course, the best filmmakers are going to, uh, are going to ride on this man's coattails because he is such an innovator. So you get images like, um, there's, a, there's a scene where uh, the thieves come together and they're, uh, they're plotting how they're going to trap this killer. Yeah. Uh, and um, first of all, the camera's very high, so you get the sense that you know, you're getting the overall image of the, of the scene. And then it cuts to their shadows on the wall. And the rest of the scene plays out with these guys in, in, in kind of shadow, oh, leaning over each other. But you're not looking at them at all. You're just looking at this flat flock wallpaper with these shadows and the shadow of their smoke coming off their cigars. It's absolutely beautiful. And he holds it. There's another moment where um, Inspector Lohman is, is he's having a breakthrough uh, in terms of the case by thinking it through, yeah. which as you and I know is an incredibly difficult thing to concretize in cinema. How do you think something through on camera and, and externalise it so that the audience understands? And Fritz Lang does this brilliant thing with the camera where uh, uh, Lohmann is thinking about the name of this cigarette, which is called Ariston. And he goes, so you found an Ariston. 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 And he's just repeating the word as he's thinking about it, thinking about it and thinking about it. And every time he speaks the camera drifts in another yeah. couple of feet and then it waits. And then he says the word again and the camera drifts in a little bit more. It's genius. It's so expressive. And you are absolutely with that man and you know what's going on and it's externalized so beautifully. Another thing that, another way that he uh, gets around, you know, one of the big problems of, of cinema always is how do you show something that isn't there? So how do you show somebody looking for something and not finding it, Right. This is an, a concrete medium, right? Yeah. We record pictures and sound. It's quite animal. So how do you show something that isn't there? And the way that he articulates the, the loss of a, of a little girl is, you know, in a, in a contemporary film, uh, the, uh, the temptation for, for the director is not as good as Fritz Lang, <laughs> might be, uh, you know, to, to show the body, which is grotesque, and nobody wants to see that. Uh, and it makes it a certain kind of film, which is not the kind of film that, that you know, I think is worth anything. Uh, you don't want to do that. Um, so how do you show that she's no longer there? And he does this absolutely beautiful thing where he shows her dinner plate. Uh, and her dinner plate is still clean, and there's still a knife and fork on either side. And he just holds on. And then the last time we saw her, she was holding a balloon and it cuts to the balloon, which is tangled up in some telephone wires. Yeah. And, and now we know, and now we know, and we know people are looking for her and we know that she's gone. And it's yeah. just, it's so, um, it's such a beautiful tone poem. Uh, and the whole film is full of those things. It's full of these really visually articulate moments uh, that, are, that are incredibly emotive and incredibly expressive. Yeah, I wanted to come back to the top shots, to the overheads, because this time through it felt to me as though it's the moral position somehow, that, that the film doesn't really have room for God, but in 1931 it would be something that you would invoke. And I think he found the way to do that just by showing us 
I, at first I thought it was a sociological thing that you're watching people position themselves and move around and figure out, you know, you're watching a society or ultimately it's a movie about mob justice, but it isn't really a mob. It's an organized criminal concern. We see a mob early on and it's distressing and frightening and, and messy, but also the victim is also identified in the same way with an overhead shot. Uh, this, the innocent man who is, who is initially yeah, attacked. Yeah. Um, and then subsequently it's like swarming. It's like watching an insect intelligence, a collective form. It's watching a collective. And, and, yeah. and that's such a brilliant thing about this film, isn't it? That notion of the collective, uh, which is it's just really hard to do in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hear about it all the time as an abstract concept. Oh, I'm sorry, I spoke over you. No, no, that's exactly it. I think, I think it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to do. And particularly, um, you know, you were talking about where he pulls sound out. There's the moment where Peter Lorre gets cornered by the collective, by this, uh, you know, incredibly well-organized group of, uh, of criminals and beggars. And they corner him in the street, but they don't corner him by ganging up on him and getting really close. They corner him like a, like a kind of, um, like, like chess pieces where they block off his exit, but he's still kind of four or five meters from everybody. So it's, it's um, you know, it's very COVID friendly. That's yes, it's true. <laughs> what do they call that? A pincer movement. Yes, exactly. They're all quite socially distant. But, but you're right. And there are a huge number of top shots in the film. I was really struck by that. And I think you're right. I think it is about saying, here is the community, whether it's the community of the police or the community of the, uh, the thieves and the beggars. Here is the community in action. And here is how we see them. There's also an absolutely beautiful top shot where uh, there's, one, uh, there's one thief who gets left behind in the building when the police yeah. raid the building. And uh, there's a beautiful top shot where he's drilled down through one office to get into another. And you see him coming up from the, the lower office towards the camera. Uh, and it's the most elegant, beautifully constructed frame. It's completely circular. Yep. And as he comes towards us, the camera jibs up away from us and reveals that there's a circle of policemen all around him. And I thought, oh my God, it's the Hurt Locker. It's <laughs> yeah, really actually. Hurt Locker that is absolutely that moment. Visually, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so it's those resonances are just going on through the generations of filmmakers. Yeah, although this one does actually have a joke in that scene. There aren't that many jokes in this movie, but I was really impressed with that one. Where they put your hands up. I'm holding a rope. I cannot put my hands up. The, the, it's so German. It's so logical. There is another great joke where um, the chief inspector is trying to, uh, trying to bully the same guy that the police have captured into telling them what they were doing breaking into the building. Yeah, uh, and uh, and finally, the chief inspector is looking away from the guy, and he is one of almost every single person in the film is smoking yep. throughout the film. Also very German. Well, yes, very Berlin, uh, and uh, they smoke a whole variety of different things, from roll-ups to pipes to big fat cigars to what look like reefers. Uh, I saw a pipe he, with a cigar sticking out of it. At one that point. was a particularly unusual one, I felt. <laughs> anyway, Loman has this great big fat cigar to indicate that, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a bougie kind of guy. Uh, and he has his back to the criminal and the criminal tells him we were looking for the child murderer. And Loman, who up until this moment has been completely in possession of himself, drops his cigar. And he tries to hide it from the guy behind him. And it's just a beautifully constructed shot yeah. where you don't need to cut away. You don't need to see both actors in close-up to absolutely see the mask fall from each of them for a moment because they're not looking one another in the eye. You have both those performances in play at the same time and it's both funny and tragic and exciting and thrilling uh, and moves the story forward. It's just, it's so, he's so economical. 
Yeah, I was trying to think of other procedurals that have the same sort of economy that way, that that parallel groups. Um, you know, uh, M is credited with inventing both the serial killer film and the police procedural, and that's probably true, at least in terms of a, a sound narrative, the way that we relate to them now. But I just kept thinking of how precise it is in not showing us the thing that everyone is talking about, the, the, the violence, the actual child murdering, the, or even just, 100%. yeah, the, yeah, the mechanics I think it's, of. It's a wonderful, wonderful film for that reason, that it's emotive and you feel the, uh, the tragedy, but it's never um, exploitative. Mm-hmm. It was pilloried uh, at the never, time, but that was because yeah, there was a real child murder case happening in, in Germany at the time. Can I just say the other thing that, uh, that I absolutely love about the film, just apropos of its being made in 1931, there's a couple of things. One is, um, I, I don't know if you speak German, but, uh, but the, the Berlin accents in the film are terrific. That, it, that it's really colloquial Berlin in a way that cinema just wasn't at the time. You know, it would always be a Hochdeutsch and everybody would be speaking, you know, the equivalent of Oh, sure, the- uh, uh, what are they called? Received pronunciation. Received pronunciation, formalism, yes. yeah. Or the mid-Atlantic thing that was happening exactly, in America. Exactly, exactly. Whereas these people are speaking proper street German and they're speaking slang and they speak like, you know, like street Berlin. Um, and there's something so thrilling about that in a film that's that age. Uh, and that made me think, and, the, and of course the final scene in the film is eight minutes long. It's a massive big long scene where he's tried by this uh, community of beggars and thieves. And I was looking at it going, this feels like the Threepenny Opera, doesn't it? It's very Brechtian. Um, it's so Brechtian. And so then I started looking at Bertolt Brecht and, and Fritz Lang, and of course they're contemporaries. And of course, Peter Lorre gets his start uh, as an actor with Brecht. I think he had actually been working with Brecht while they shot this. If the timelines line up, he was working on a play at the same time as making this. It's really unsurprising, isn't it? Because yeah. suddenly you go, oh my God, this is the Threepenny Opera. Like the whole notion that um, there's this wonderfully civilized underworld of, uh, of criminals and beggars, all of whom have membership numbers. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And work in unison. Like it's really Brechtian. <laughs> yeah, the one thing that's missing is the um, is the musicality of it, the, the rhythms of it, but that's supplied by the whistling by Pierre Gint, so you sort of have a different motif. It's I kept thinking of Mac the Knife, of course, um, but it's it's actually more irritating to do Pierre Gint, to have something that just won't stop and then roots itself in your memory. So you leave the theater thinking, am I, did I get, am I infected now? Is this some sort of murder virus that it's spread by the film? It's, it's just so insidiously effective. And it's, it's also powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And it's playful at the same time. So even though he's whistling it as a compulsion, it, it's what attracts children. It's what makes him feel approachable. And it's, it's, it's pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty dark, but you're right. And I mean, of course, in the whole of the Mountain Kings, it's like, it's in a minor key. There's something kind of threatening about it. But it's also jaunty. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I agree with you. I think it was again. It was. It's another innovation in this film that has been taken up by generation upon generation upon generation of filmmakers. You know, it's it's a cliche of the genre now to say in this thriller there will be uh, something that you associate with childhood in terms of singing or whistling that will be the mark of the killer. But this is where it comes from. This is this was the origin of the species. Yeah. Um, and the way that he uses that tune 
first of all, that uh, it sounds jaunty the first time you hear it, and yet there's something because it's in a minor key. You know, there's something wrong. Secondly, because um, he he builds it into the 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 way that the audience would have felt the novelty of sound, and therefore he makes sound such a crucial element of the storytelling. Um, and then thirdly, that whereas he has beautifully and elegantly expressed this tune as the thing that we now associate like Pavlov's dogs with an imminent murder, that then he lets us follow Peter Laurie so we understand it's a compulsion. And we see him, you know, that scene where he's sitting in the cafe and, he, and Fritz Lang does this wonderful thing with the camera as well, which is, again, feels so contemporary, where uh, Peter Laurie goes into a cafe and we stay outside the cafe and it looks like it's on the there's a whole lot of cafes, as I'm sure you know, on the Spree that are like this, with um, uh, uh, fencing and gorgeous um, uh, ivy and different climbing flowers on the outside of the fencing. Mm-hmm. And so we're outside this fencing. Peter Laurie goes and he sits in the, in the outdoor area of the cafe and the camera very slowly creeps in on him. So he's in this quite bucolic setting uh, and he puts his head in his hands and he starts whistling. And as the camera creeps in closer and closer to him, looking at him through the, the, um, the bars of the foliage. So we're, we're, we're now the predators. We're now the peeping Tom looking in at this man who is suffering and limited and in pain because of this disorder. And we feel it often. And it's a complete turning of the tables. It's, it's a humanizing of that figure that although he is causing this horrible suffering, he too is suffering. And it's all done by means of this sound. Yeah. And it doesn't let us disassociate from him. The, the identification with, I mean, we, we as, as the objective spectators, obviously we know more than any other character or anyone in the film ever knows. And he Lang weaponizes that in a way that you don't often... Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about, I'm, I'm trying to think about the most famous um, serial killer films or not the most famous, but the most popular ones. And I, I suppose Silence of the Lambs is the big one, uh, which offers us just enough to connect to Buffalo Bill, mostly through Ted Levine's performance, but not through the material. He's never, we only see him as he sees himself. We never see him as pathetic. We never see him as hurting or, or in pain. He's fully monsterized i guess that's what thomas harris does i think he's monstrous yeah i think Mm -hmm. that figure is monstrous and i think it i think um, i think it's tied up a lot with sex and uh and gender performance in a way that's quite troubling oh Um, well yeah it hasn't aged very well it's true but um thomas harris yeah i think the um the sexual politics of that film overall are are interesting I'm, i'm folding in red dragon as well in the way that harris tried then at least to give the primp antagonist a tragic backstory he was uh, he had a cleft palate and was brutalized by his adoptive families and then there's a lot that leads to this beautiful moment where um someone gets to say like my heart bleeds for the child he was but I, he's a monster and he needs to be put down m doesn't do that m gives us a portrait of someone who is yeah he's as much of a victim as the children he kills it's just that it's more human. I think it's, yeah. I think it's richer and more intelligent. Uh, I think that he doesn't come down on the side of the vigilante or the side of murder in any kind of meaningful way. I think he's mm-hmm. much more uh, generous 
and much more human. The other thing that I would say that uh, um, that I think is worth mentioning, and is probably rooted, as you say, in the the, the kind of Brechtian aspects of the story, is um, how much agency the women in the film have. Uh, you know, there's no question of um, they're not having a voice. All of the crowds, all of the crowds in the film, which is really unusual for the time, and sadly still unusual, are made up of men and women. Uh, and in all of the scenes where, uh, where the, the beggar's army has come together or the beggar's organization has come together, sure. uh, where there are beggars and criminals, there are always women and they always speak. And they make the most uh, cogent points too. And they make really cogent points. And, and yeah. they, you know, they're, they're, they're not, neither are they limited to um, reproducing gender stereotypes. For instance, in that scene towards the end of the film, uh, the the one of the women who stands up says the mothers will have no mercy. Uh, the mothers uh, whose children were taken from them will not allow him to live. And there's something really interesting about that as well, that he's not falling into some sort of romantic trope about, you know, the tenderness of women or anything like that. This is 1931 and it feels really contemporary and really um, human, really open uh, and very... Yeah, yeah. Well, he lays that uh, out at the very beginning as well, just with um, with Elsa's mother just trying to hold herself together and not panic every time she talks to someone and asks if they've seen her. It's really, it, uh, this time through, I found it really piercing in a way that I think the first time, I must have seen it for the first time maybe in the 90s. So it's been a while, but this time through, I really responded to that actor trying yeah. to layer the things in. They're amazing, aren't they? They're yeah. amazing. She said no, that character is so withheld. I don't know the name of the actor to my shame, oh, but she's, she gives this incredibly modern performance, just thinking that we've only just come out of silent cinema. That's what where, I was going to say. Yeah, the convention is that you have to slightly overstate it, you know, kind of almost commedia dell'arte to play it to the audience. Oh, yeah. Um, and she delivers this really kind of modern, uh, very withheld, non-theatrical performance. Uh, Peter Laurie as well. I, mean, I was going to say, yeah. He does not... Form is extraordinary. Yeah, he keeps turning he keeps up his own attention, it, and he keeps turning it. And uh, the w- one thing that I hadn't noticed until I watched it this time, uh, uh, like you, every time you see it, you see other things in it. Oh yeah, is that um, you know there's the moment where he has um, uh, uh, clapped onto his back, back, yeah, and he's walking around with this little girl who's going to be his next victim, and then she says to him there's schmutz on your jacket, I'll just wipe it off for you. And he looks in the mirror, realises that he's being hunted, and he turns around and gives this great Peter Laurie face of, oh, yeah. total horror. And what I hadn't realised until I watched it this time is, he does it, he breaks the fourth wall. He does it right into the lens. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was that he was responding to the person shadowing him from behind the car who ducks away. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. We don't know Have about the other person it, yet. It's, in, it's incredibly arresting. And I, I actually stopped it and went back like, did that, was that just what I, what I thought? And it is, it's like bang, straight down the barrel of the lens. And it, it makes your heart stop. You go, oh, because he's looking right at you. But he's looking at you like he's terrified of you. It's, it's, it's such an incredibly interesting uh, visual innovation. And it's the only time he breaks the fourth wall in the whole film. But yeah. it's, of course, it is the fulcrum of the film. It's the hinge point of the film. Yeah, even his confession slash... Uh, soliloquy. I, I think it's a confession. I mean, he's, he's acknowledging that he is the murderer, but he doesn't see it that way. And he, he has his argument 
even that is played as theater to the audience. It's not directed at the, at the, at the sorry, the, it's directed to the audience of beggars and thieves. It's not directed to us. And that, in, I, I, we were talking about the camera work being with all the top shots, but the, that one beautiful pan that just doesn't stop with hundreds of people, the entirety of, of Berlin's underworld is there in judgment of him. That's just so arresting. It's so arresting and it's so startling and it's both uh, a, a portrait of community and it's also quite threatening, isn't it? Because oh, yeah. he does that Hitchcockian thing, even though, of course, he's before Hitchcock, yep. of, of making you feel for the person that you really should be trying to punish. But you're, you're in it with Peter Laurie in that moment going, oh, Jesus Christ, they are all here. They're yeah. all here. And yeah. he's trapped. But uh, that thing, I, I was also really struck by um, how existential that is. Uh, what is it he goes, he gets stuck in this loop, Peter Laurie, where he's going, ich will nicht, ich muss, ich will nicht, ich muss, I, I don't want to, but I have to, I don't want mm. to, but I have to, which is, of course, pure Beckett. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I can't go on, I must go on, I can't go on, I must go on. But uh, And he leaves us there, you know, Fritz Lang leaves us there going, this is this is the circle that he's trapped in. Like, what are you going to do about that? Uh, it's just it's it's an incredibly intelligent and emotionally intelligent piece of work. Yeah, he's a pitiable monster. He needs to be stopped. There's never any question. The film does not, for a second, sympathize with him. But we are allowed to, which I found really interesting. That's and to think that, as you say, they're inventing this as they go because there has not been not only has there not been a movie like this before, but there's not been a a performance or a genre or an approach. Um, I, I did an episode about uh, Casablanca with and um, we, we realized as we were talking about it that we we're watching a group of Eastern European refugees make a movie about the world they just escaped from and invent that sort of resistance-themed studio picture. Yes, uh, it is interesting, isn't it? And, and it, yeah. you can't, I think you're absolutely right. I kept thinking about that while I was watching it going, this is 1931. In two years' time, both Peter Lorre and Fritz Lang are going to escape from Germany. So what's under the surface of this film? What's, what's bubbling under the surface here? Who are they actually talking to in Germany, in Berlin at this moment? Yeah. Because it's a really left-wing film. It's, um, you know, it's about the collective. It's about yep. uh, extending sympathy to everybody. Uh, it's about trying not to stand in judgment, but rather to understand uh, and yet it's also about the necessity for the rule of law and the necessity for protecting people. And the way that the story ends with these um, these women going, whatever you do to him, it won't bring the children back, uh, which is, you know, an amazing, brilliant piece of uh, uh, propaganda, not propaganda, but an amazing argument against state violence. Yeah. Uh, and he and he leaves you there uh, in this quandary. Yeah. Um, but but I, I really agree with you. I think it's it's very much a film... That's, that's quite obviously reflective of those big tectonic plates that are about to clash together in Europe. Yeah. And in Berlin in particular. Yeah, it's, I mean, jokingly, I was thinking of it as the first, the first social justice movie because that yeah. sort of is what you see. Yeah. But in and the it's shadow... it's very different from the other films that you're told, or not, it's not different from Casablanca. It's very similar to Casablanca in those terms, I think, in that it extends sympathy for every, to everybody. But very different from the other thrillers that you were talking about. Yeah. In that it does not, it doesn't um, elicit disgust from you. That's not what it's trying to do. It's not trying to make you disgusted with another human. It's trying to make you understand other people. Yeah. 
the um, the booklet in the Criterion Edition includes three essays that were written around the same time as the film's release, or two, or one was by Lang, and two are directly um, as a result of the film's release. One of them is this horrified review um, by someone who speaks in outraged tones of the uh, the, the sadism and and the monstrosity of, at work in the film, and how uh, when a child hands her future murderer his knife, it's we're we're supposed to be ripped apart by the sadism and, and the cruelty on display. And it's just, I didn't see that at all. I mean, it's horror. It is true horror, but it's also sad. It's, it's this child's innocence being maintained up until the moment of her death, which is somehow tragic in a way that I don't know that any other- She doesn't get killed also, that child. Oh, that's right. She gets to run away. Um, or at least, do we see? Yes, we do. Well, she, yeah, she, he, he runs away. Um, yeah. So- She's, uh, she's not actually a victim in the end. But, but you are right that there's a level of trust there. And it's funny, I, I watched the film with, uh, with my daughter who said, wow, children are never allowed to run around cities like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it's a soundstage if that makes it any better. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I was thinking about it. You know, I'm the youngest of my family and my, um, the eldest of my siblings is 10 years older than me. And she would, uh, you know, at the age of seven or eight, catch a bus across town to, to come back home from school at lunchtime yeah. and then walk out and catch a bus across town to go back to school. Those days are gone. Yeah. When I was 10, so 1978, I was taking a bus down a good 45 minute bus ride to school with my brother. So we were always together. Maybe that was part of the strategy, but yeah, I can't imagine that happening now. Although it was sort of nice then. Um, lovely. It's yeah. lovely. Yeah. And then you realize you're speaking from a child's perspective where you had no idea of what was out there in the world and, and the, the miseries everywhere. It's, it's, it's a form of insulation. But yeah, that's, that's, not, that's just not a thing anymore. No, it's not a thing. But uh, the, the, other, the other lovely thing, and you are right, that, that there's this constant juxtaposition between trust and betrayal, between the, the children's trust and his uh, imminent betrayal of that trust. And the way that those shots are framed, again, he just uses the artillery, the language of cinema to be really economical in showing you that. So there's that beautiful image of um, Peter Laurie looking in at, um, it's, it's a shop full of spoons and forks and knives. Yeah. And he's looking through the window and we're looking from inside the shop, looking out at him and he's framed by this beautiful display of knives. And then he looks up at something that's in the window that's a reflection and it's a reflection of a little girl who is now also framed with knives. Yeah. And, and that's as close as he gets to saying anything explicit. And it's, it's elegant and economical and threatening. And, and you can see Hitchcock looking at that and learning uh, because it, it's very reflective of the way that Hitchcock uses visual storytelling. Um, and there it is, absolutely beautiful. And the other thing that's really lovely about that same sequence, which is completely nonverbal, is so we see uh, we see Peter Laurie surrounded by knives. We see the little girl also surrounded by knives, and then we cut back to Peter Laurie, and now we're outside the shop looking at him. And because we're outside the shop looking at him, he is now reflected back at us through the glass as well. So now there's two of him, uh, and you get that notion of splitting, which is of course what's happening. Uh, what what Fritz Lang is trying to tell us is happening in this man's head. Yeah. Is he's splitting into the version of himself going ich will. And the version of himself going, uh, uh, no, ich muss and ich will nicht. 
uh, the version of him that's going, I have to, but I don't want to. And the splitting is happening visually on screen for us. It's an incredibly elegant, intelligent, visually creative piece of visual, piece of storytelling with no words spoken. Yeah. I wonder how many innovations stopped once we saw the first wave. You know, once you saw how the rules should work, you stopped thinking about how, how to defy them. It's an interesting idea, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I do think, I, I know, uh, I read somewhere Fritz Lang thought this was his best film. I think it's his best film. I think it's his most emotionally articulate. And I think it's the, the one where he really concretizes that kind of expressionist cinema through sound and picture. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about the, 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 the other kind of great joke in the film, which is the woman who is, uh, who is the murderer's landlady is deaf. <laughs> yes. And That's conversely... True the man who actually identifies the murderer is blind. Yeah. <laughs> Which again is more of a sense of the collective, right? Because your weaknesses become, your perceived weaknesses become strengths to the yeah. larger, to the greater good. And it's, you know, it's Fritz Lang going, and we're telling you a story with picture and sound, but actually you only need one uh, in order to, to, um, to piece together what the world is. Yeah. Uh, or if you have, exactly as you say, if you have the collective around you, um, even though he is exploiting image and uh, and sound in the most profound way himself. Yeah, it just, it's so, I mean, I'm a big fan of Ministry of Fear, but yeah, I think this is easily his, his best work. It's just, it feels like the future, right? I mean, you said it yourself, it feels like a contemporary film, but it also feels like it's still going forward. That there, there's, um, there's a moment where, when, um, when Laurie is cornered in that, in the in the warehouse in the in the office building the camera just fires itself at him rushes at him and scorsese's ripped that off a couple of times but it is so powerful i this time really just thinking oh right of course the re- it may but it, it's it's just an incredibly jarring powerful image it puts us in the in the shoes of the pursuers again but also it just made me realize none of those other beautiful gliding shots were accomplished was accomplished with a steady cam Yes, he was just—he was just holding it back. <laughs> That's so true. That's yeah. so true. And uh, you know, we haven't really talked about the editing uh, either. And the editing is just—just just feels so modern in this film. And he's so playful with the editing. There's that whole sequence where you see the two communities. You see the yeah. community of the police and the community of the uh, of the thieves and the beggars. Um, and they're both kind of ruminating on how they're going to try and catch this guy. Uh, and he keeps editing on gesture. He's editing yeah. on continuity of gesture. And it's just beautiful. And of course, it does exactly what editing on the continuity of gesture does, which is to say these people are the same. Um, and yet he's doing it in 1931. Nobody's going to do that again for another 10 years. <laughs> I know, and it's incredible. Beautiful moving camera shots where he's, uh, he, you know, the camera glides forward and glides in and then suddenly he's cutting, but you don't feel the cut and it glides up to something else. He's in, he's enjoying it. Yeah, it's the pleasure of the form. I mean, it's the I think that's almost edging into adventure film territory, which people would have recognized from the silence, and so it puts you on the back foot for the horror, for the for the for the murder stuff. It's just it's an, it's thrilling to be with the mob in those moments, and I think that's part of his point as well. But just to know, God damn it, just to know all that in 1931, I'm in awe of him. It is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary piece of work. I really agree. And, uh, you know, it still feels innovative, which I think is just the most incredible achievement. Yeah. It's, there's just no hint of being 
tied to the silent era or stagecraft or, or any of the things that so many films are just clearly relying on from that era. I mean, even the, I'm trying to think of, you know, the comedies of the time where you had to keep the camera static because the microphone was on a plant in the, in the center of the table and you couldn't, you just, you know, all the singing in the rain jokes, but those actually applied then. And here's a film that just doesn't seem to care. It's not concerned about what you do with sound or what you do with the, with a, with a boom microphone or, or cables. You just, he just found a way in every shot to make it interesting and make it alive. Which you know what? Was... That's a, it's a really good point. I read somewhere that only 30% of the film is shot sync sound. That would make sense. And, yeah. and that all the rest of it is post sound. Uh, and there's something interesting about that, I think, for us as filmmakers, that he's using the sound as a separate layer, as a separate storytelling layer that's not just about pictures of people talking. It's actually about other things. Uh, and I think that, again, is something that Hitchcock very strongly picked up on. Uh, and I think it was he who coined that idea of, I don't want to make films that are just pictures of people talking. Um, yeah. that, the, that the sound is, uh, is, a, is a separate event. Uh, it does its own thing. Occasionally there's sync sound with, with the actors, but that's not actually the key thing that the sound is doing in this film. It's, as you say, it's, um, it's the Hall of the Mountain Kings. It's the moments with the traffic. It's those sudden sounds that are embedded in silence, like when the woman goes, the cops are coming! And we've had complete silence before that. Or when you get the beggars in the silence of the street suddenly whistling to one another. Uh, and so it becomes this kind of piercing story beat. And I think that for us as contemporary filmmakers is still something that's worth investigating. Yeah, I can't think of many contemporary films that try the same thing. Uh, other than, you know, music for a jump scare, but that's that's meta-narrative. That's a completely different thing. To have it happen within the world is, it's a bigger risk, I guess. It's Just a bigger risk. I think you're right. I think you need to be really in charge of your craft to do it and hold the audience, right? I think so, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson probably does it. Oh, he does, actually, in uh, Punch Drunk Love, Shattering the Glass. It's the one time I can think of him doing that. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So he's a master. Fine. We knew that. Um, is there anything of, uh, of M that you have? I was trying to think of it in terms of, of Sea Fever or, or Jessica Jones, and I'm not coming up with too many options, but is there anything of, of M that you have borrowed or lifted or stolen outright over the course of your career? Um, I'm very influenced. I, think, I started out in visual art, and I'm very influenced by uh, the overall approach that Fritz Lang and his contemporaries have to the way that stories should be or the way that stories can be. And the big influence that I take from his, all of his cinema is that idea that you can set up a parallel world which is based on one metaphorical idea, which is that really Brechtian idea. You know, it's interesting that he's a contemporary of Brecht and he is using that idea, I think. We're setting up a world that's, that's obviously not the real world. Uh, and I'm going to make the characters as honest and human and layered and three-dimensional as I can. And I'm going to put a big metaphor in the middle of that story. And that metaphor is going to resonate and sound like a gong all the way through this film. And it's going to carry you out of the cinema. And the experience of watching the film is going to feel like a dream in the true sense of feeling like a dream because... It's rooted in symbolism, but the, symbolim, the symbolism is being articulated through proper, conflicted, three-dimensional characters. And that's what I think I'm, I try to do. And I think Sea Fever is an expressionist film for that reason, 
Okay. That every image is a considered image. The palette is considered. The sound is considered. Uh, they're, um, they operate as active storytelling devices and it's rooted in a, a, a recognisable, grounded reality with a central Brechtian metaphor. And speaking of metaphors and sea fever, I, I would be remiss because all of a sudden you've made a quarantine film, you know, a year ahead of the actual quarantine. It's a movie that is almost entirely consumed by the end with the debate over saving other people by keeping yourself in one place. How's that happen? I mean, it's I, can't be, I can't be the first person who's presented this to you, but how, how did that, how is that going now? How did, what's the effect of all the commentary suddenly changing from what it was when you played at TIFF to what it is now? It's funny you should say that. And a lot of people obviously say to me, wow, it's such a coincidence. But actually, you know, it's not really a coincidence because when I was writing the film, when we were making the film, we were thinking about the climate crisis. Mm. And you go, okay, well, so what are the big fissures culturally that when you press down on them, start to open up and become painful? Um, and the fissures in our culture at the time, it seems to me, what's the reason why the climate crisis is so painful and difficult? It's because we've set ourselves up as if we are individuals in competition with one another, as if we're atomized and as if Margaret Thatcher's adage was true. She famously said, there's no such thing as society. Um, and that we're all just individual actors that have to act against each other in a zero-sum game. Um, and when we do that, then, uh, you know, the, the pressures of economic success have to be primary. Um, but the problem with the climate crisis and COVID is exactly the same, mm. is that the pressures of individual success don't really apply. I can't succeed unless I join hands with you. I can't succeed if I only look after my family. I have to think about everybody else as well, and we will all succeed together. There is such a thing as society. No man is an island. We are a community. And I think the climate crisis at the time, that's what I was thinking of, because that was the thing that was, um, that was pointing that up to us so specifically. But COVID does exactly the same thing. It's exactly yeah. the same kind of crisis. And what you see is exactly the same pressures being placed on the most vulnerable people, which is, well, you can either have economic survival or you can have health survival, but you can't have both. And that's an impossible quandary. You know, that's, it, that is the ultimate in cruelty. Um, and of course, you know, in, the, in ecological terms, it's like you, you can either be uh, economically um, barely surviving or you can think about the climate crisis, but you can't do both at the same time because they're mutually exclusive if we live in an atomized world. Right. Um, and, and I think that's why, that's, that's exactly what those people in that story are dealing with is how do I take responsibility? Do I have to take responsibility just for myself and run? Or do I have to take responsibility for the people on the boat and risk everybody else? Or do I have to take responsibility for the place that we're coming home to and therefore protect them, even though I don't know them, from the possibility that I and my friends here on the boat might be a risk to them? And where, where do you draw that line? And there's no clear answer to that, as we know from COVID. But I, but I feel like it's not really a big coincidence for that reason, because that is the big fissure that we're dealing with culturally. Yeah, and it, it is fascinating how COVID has, if nothing else, we may not know where to draw the line, but we've learned who's interested in trying to find it and who just doesn't care at all. Yeah, those people who think that everybody is pitted against each other and, you know, it's me or you, one of us will win, but we can't both win. 
and those of us who see ourselves as part of a community and who see that winning is something that we do together. My thanks to Nessa Hardiman, whose first feature, Sea Fever, is available now on disc and on demand and streaming in the U.S. on Hoopla and Hulu. It's a solid debut, and I'm very eager to see what she does next. Also, uh, sorry about the bleep, but I promise you'll find out who picked Casablanca very soon. You can find Nessa on Twitter at Nessa Hardiman, all one word, and you can find M on Blu-ray and DVD in an excellent restoration from the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel and available on Apple TV. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host a bunch of podcasts in addition to writing about film and television. You should check those out, too. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.